Welcome to Humble Beginnings, a podcast where we uncover the unconventional, more relatable paths to success. In this show, we'll share the stories before the C-suites, board memberships, and appointments, the stories of various upbringings, first jobs, career pivots, educational uncertainties, and more. This is the place to hear about their lives from the GovCon executives themselves. We hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Humble Beginnings. I'm your host, Amanda Zieta, and our guest today is Michael Jung, Executive Director of ICF's Climate Center. Thank you for being here today, Michael. Amanda, I'm so glad to be here, and I'm so glad that you guys are doing this because I'm a big believer that the who and the why matters every bit as much as the what and the how. Absolutely. We do too. I'm, I'm very excited to be uh, speaking with you today and get a little bit more about your background. So to start, Michael, I understand that you were born in Korea and your parents are Korean. And while you came to the States around three years old, I understand there's a bit of a origin story around uh, what drove your parents to come to the States. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, um, the uh, it goes all the way back to the Korean War. Uh, my father was uh, a young boy uh, hiding out in a cave. Um, and uh, uh, when uh, the shooting stopped uh, and the smoke cleared, um, the first person that he ever met was an American GI uh, who came into the cave, saw that my dad was suffering from a terrible ear infection. Um, he uh, uh, gave him a shot of penicillin and probably saved his life uh, and also gave him a piece of chocolate, uh, which also instilled a great fondness for chocolate that, uh, that, that I've inherited from him. And it also... Um, imbued on him this impression that this medic was a black man. Uh, and uh, and he, the first American he ever met was black. Um, the first American he ever met uh, gave him medicine. Um, and, uh, and he saw that, uh, you know, America was a place that did a lot of good. So he, he found an opportunity, uh, you know, the great society that was passed in 1960s by LBJ created a, 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 an unprecedented demand for medicine in America, much like the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law are creating, uh, you know, this unprecedented demand for clean energy and infrastructure. So there was this delta. Um, my father uh, was fortunate to, you know, do well enough uh, to, to escape the, the fate of being a farmer that had always preceded, uh, you know, everyone in his line of the family. Um, he made it out and became a, a physician. And then he came to the United States because America needed doctors. Uh, and, uh, and, and here I am today. I'm very lucky that, that he took that huge leap of faith. I love immigrant, you know, stories because every time I feel intimidated by a decision or unsure of what, you know, what opportunity to pursue, I just think back and, you know, realize that my parents had to make the ultimate leap of faith, uh, you know, to pick up and leave everything that was familiar to pursue uh, a better life for their children. Yeah, absolutely. How old was your dad when he, when he met the American GI? I, I think he was like maybe five or six. Um, wow. and, uh, and so it was like, uh, you know, at that age, you know, those are like some of your first big searing memories. Um, and uh, he, he remembers a chocolate more than the shot. <laughs> that's yeah, that's crazy. Thank you for sharing. Uh, so when your family decided to move to the States, you were three years old, correct? Correct. I, I, my first memories are in the States, actually. Um, I, uh, we landed in Rochester, New York. Um, uh, and, uh, my first memories are of, of this like blizzard, I think it was like the, of 1977 or something where, you know, the national guard had to like airlift food into our apartment complex. We had to dig tunnels to get out of the doors. Uh, we actually had to climb out of the windows, uh, and dig tunnels to open the doors because the snow had fully socked in the first floors. Wow. Um, and my folks said, that's crazy. Uh, let's, let's, let's get out of here. 
So, uh, so they moved down to Houston, Texas, where we enjoyed life until like the hurricane of 83 or something blew the roof off of our garage. Uh, and we ended up in Kentucky. Um, in a certain sense, you know, we were climate refugees early on. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, my, my family immigrated to this country as well. And they also landed in upstate New York. Uh, unfortunately they didn't take us somewhere warmer, <laughs> before that, but <laughs> that's, that's crazy that, uh, you've, you've experienced such extreme weather changes, um, that have caused your family to move around the state so early on. Well, maybe subconsciously the fact that I was a, you know, a climate refugee as a young child and then ended up in coal country in Appalachian, Kentucky, um, might have imprinted my fate as an energy and climate professional uh, and, 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 and crusader. Yeah, I'm seeing the full circle here already. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we'll get to that. But I did want to ask about, uh, you know, what what brought your family to, you know, coal country, Kentucky, and what was what was it like growing up there? Why does it not seem like an obvious choice, Amanda, for you know Korean immigrants to end up in Kentucky? Um, the 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 truth of the matter is is that um, it reminded my father a lot of what he remembered from what is the equivalent of Appalachian Korea. Uh, it's mountainous, it's rural, and it's also the kind of place where um, people leave their garage doors open at night. They leave their doors unlocked during the day. Um, everyone knows everyone, uh, and and it's a place where you know. It's, it's intimate in that sense as a community. And, uh, and, and, and looking back, you know, I've often been asked, gosh, it must have been rough growing up as an immigrant or Korean in Kentucky. And uh, for me, it was actually, it felt like the safest of places uh, because once I got past, you know, the very shallow, uh, you know, uh, biases or whatever um, that people might've had, for example, people, everyone assumed I knew Kung Fu. Uh, and, I, uh, you know, I didn't, uh, I'm a Korean, so I knew Taekwondo. They didn't know the difference, but I did. And uh, once we got past that, they looked at me and they're like, okay, I guess you're just like us in every other way. Because that's the only, you know, prejudice that we have, the only stereotype that we can conjure up. So I, I, I very much enjoyed growing up there. Um, but ultimately, um, you know, uh, I, I, I chose to pursue schooling uh, up the East Coast. But, uh, but, you know, I would always say, you know, on breaks, I'm going back to my old Kentucky home. Yeah, I can relate in, in many ways. My father also grew up in war uh, in Lebanon and I think the suburbs in the, in the Northeast where a safe haven, it felt, must've felt so different than, you know, the way he grew up. So what, what was it like? What, like, what would your parents, um, I don't know, instill in you growing up or, or maybe perhaps how did you grow up differently with their mindset? Um, the way that they grew up, the things that your, your parents have experienced once they came to America and in, in Kentucky. Well, like you, Amanda, I imagine that, you know, uh, we both probably grew up with a sense of maybe responsibility is too heavy a word, but Knowing that our parents came here made a very you know, tough choice and took a big leap of faith in order to, to build a better life for us and build, create new opportunities for us. I always felt this obligation to like explore those opportunities, uh, to, to, to fulfill those opportunities. Um, so, so I, you know, I got into everything. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't just sit on the couch all day. You know, my parents made a big choice to come here. I needed to do something with myself. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm a curious mind. So I always enjoyed learning. Uh, whether it was a sport or a hobby or schoolwork or, uh, you know, uh, nose in a book kind of a thing. Those were the kind of, you know, values. Looking back, I only, you know, the only thing I'd change about it is uh, at that time, I think my parents and many others in that generation didn't realize that kids could grow up speaking more than one language. Um, and so, uh, so I had to teach myself Korean, learn Korean uh, as an adult, which, uh, you know, that was fun too. Uh, but gosh, I could have gotten it for free if they'd only known better. But Hindsight's always twenty twenty. 
Yep. I can completely relate to that as well. I do not know how to read and write Arabic. It is something that I wish my parents taught us growing up too, but I think it was more so, you know, going to school and, and fitting in where yeah. you are. It's not um, too late, Amanda. I just hit the thousand day mark on Duolingo uh, with, uh, with, with my language instruction. So it's not too late. All right. So Michael, let's talk about your educational uh, journey for a bit. You were born in Korea. You grew up in, in Kentucky and found your way to Yale. Uh, we know Yale is not an easy college to get into. So what took you to Yale? What was that process like? Uh, it's, it's, it's a funny story, which um, goes all the way back to the fact that I grew up in a neighborhood in, in Kentucky where there was only one other kid. And uh, we were the default playmates because there was no one else to play with. And he told me one day, he was kind of a troublemaker. He said, uh, I'm going, I'm getting sent off to boarding school, which uh, for him meant a disciplinary kind of military academy. Uh, but my first thought was, you are not leaving me in this neighborhood all by myself. And so I applied to boarding schools too. And, uh, and I ended up getting into a place called Exeter Academy, which is in New Hampshire. Uh, uh, and I applied to all the same schools he did, plus some others. He applied to all the same schools I did, plus some others. We didn't get into a single school that overlapped. So uh, next thing I knew, I was unpacking in New Hampshire. And Exeter is uh, you know, a, a fantastic place to, to get a great education. And it really kind of set me on a path to, you know, to, to attend all the other schools I did afterwards. Uh, Yale, I really liked because it was the kind of school where once you got there, you rarely heard the word Yale. Uh, there was this lack of self-awareness. It was just, you know, once you've gotten there, okay, you know, let's, let's, let's do what we want to do, build what we want to build and, and create our community. You just went to the bookstore. You just went to the cafe. You didn't go to the Yale bookstore or the Yale cafe. Uh, you know, that self-deprecation I found uh, refreshing. So you studied uh, environmental studies, correct? I, I took the approach of taking all the classes that looked interesting my freshman and sophomore year, which included film studies and fractal geometry, et cetera, et cetera. And I ended up uh, at the end of sophomore year looking at the major requirements and trying to figure out what could I possibly complete now that I pursued my interests. And, uh, and it ended up being environmental studies and East Asian studies. So I did double major. So you mentioned, you know, we, we, we kind of can see where your interest or curiosity in climate started. Uh, what else drove this passion for you? You know, Amanda, it, it, it goes down to being a Boy Scout. Uh, that was one of the things that I got into as a kid in Kentucky. Um, and, and one of the mantras in Boy Scouting is, you know, you got to leave the campsite cleaner than it was when you got there. And, uh, and I've all, I, I guess I've just scaled that up. Um, you know, I feel this responsibility that this campsite of planet Earth, uh, I've got to do my part to clean it up and leave it better than it was when I got here. Uh, it's a lot of work to do uh, because we're making an awful mess out of it. Uh, but, um, you know, there, there's work to be done and, uh, and I'm not going to sit on the couch while, uh, while that's happening. Awesome. Yeah. You mentioned Boy Scouts and I did promise that we'd come back to this. So, and, and this is coming from your bio. I know you're, you're an Eagle Scout. Uh, you're a Fulbright fellow. You mentioned Taekwondo, you're a black belt. Uh, and this is a humble brag, but I am too. So another relatable note, <laughs> uh, you're a former competitive ballroom dancer, professional ski instructor, ping pong entrepreneur, tennis player, backpacker, you know, all of these extracurricular things that, first of all, you have the time to do, but also excel at. Uh, you also mentioned you learned Korean as an adult and you're studying many languages. So where does that drive come from to not only be involved in so many activities, but to also really do them full on? If I could wave my magic wand, I would add more hours to the day. Um, and, <laughs> and I'm a big believer that it's not a matter of finding the time, it's a matter of creating that time. Uh, and, and there's always time to be created. Um, 
I probably drive the rest of my family crazy, but I'm a restless soul and I'm always kind of needing some stimulation, some challenge, some new objective or goal. Um, and, uh, and, you know, just like Taekwondo, Amanda, um, you know, there's a discipline uh, that you can develop early uh, that carries you through in, into a lot of other areas. Um, you know, the discipline that it takes to, you know, to get to a black belt in Taekwondo is discipline that translates into the work life, into, you know, everything else that you pursue. And so uh, uh, I, I imagine that, you know, uh, getting started on the right foot with uh, a hobby early on. And, you know, I've got kids, uh, you know, trying to instill that sense of discipline uh, is, uh, is something that I think is really important. Yeah, I agree. In hindsight, I do. I, I didn't love karate and, and Taekwondo growing up, but I completely appreciate what it taught me and, and, you know, the perspective I have now. So I understand it as an adult, as a kid, <laughs> it was a little tough, but yeah, absolutely. Okay. So tracking back to Yale for a bit, you graduated, uh, like you said, double major. What was your first job out of college? My first job out of college. I, I don't know if you call it a job officially. I guess it is a job. Uh, I earned a Fulbright fellowship uh, and I was uh, sent to Korea. Um, that's where I learned my Korean or relearned my Korean. Uh, I think I still probably still spoke better at three than I do now, uh, but at least I can get by uh, and, and, uh, and, and not get too lost. Um, and, uh, and while I was in Korea, I took up uh, English language teaching uh, part-time uh, as part of my responsibility as a Fulbright fellow. So, uh, so I have, uh, uh, there's a generation of middle school boys that I taught uh, Korean too. They are now, you know, young men, I guess. Um, and, uh, and most of them at the time learned this very particular script. They memorized it. It was, you know, uh, hello, how are you? My name is, uh, and, uh, and, uh, I thought I would get a little creative with that. So if you meet uh, a young Korean fellow, uh, who comes from, you know, the central part of, uh, South Korea, uh, who, uh, for the late 1990s, uh, uh audience, you know, people who remember the late 1990s in your audience, uh, might remember the Budweiser light, uh, campaign, which was what's up. <laughs> I taught them that. So, uh, so that's the reference side of me poking through. That's really funny. Uh, it's cool though, that you were able to kind of go back to your roots after college. It's an, you know, it's not every day that you're given that opportunity. So that said, my, I, I should go back. My first real job that I think of as my first job, I was not paid, uh, in, 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 in dollars. I was paid in cookies, uh, because I was a tour guide, um, at, uh, at my high school or the boarding school. And, uh, uh, I, I, I was a tour guide. Uh, and when you did a tour, you got paid in cookies. Um, and so, <laughs> oh, and the cookies were delicious. I'll tell you the, the admissions director, his wife, I think baked them every day and, uh, they were in a jar and, uh, it was well worth the time spent to earn a cookie. Um, that's hilarious. But I, I, I think of that still as kind of what I do today. Um, you know, to be a tour guide is to help other people understand something, see themselves in something connect to a place or an issue or a cause. Um, and that's, you know, I, I'm kind of a tour guide for climate and energy. Uh, uh, you know, and I, I, I wish someone would give me more cookies for it. <laughs> me too. I think we should get paid in cookies a little bit more often. Well, why not? Right. Good there point. must be some IRS rule that makes that hard. <laughs> yeah, this is a call to action to all of our, <laughs> our, our audience. <laughs> so, so talk a bit about your career progression afterwards. And ultimately, I know this is a loaded question, but what led you to ICF? Uh, what were some of those crucial turning points, perhaps moments that ultimately defined your career journey? Yeah, there's, um, there's kind of two pivotal uh, moments that I'll, I'll, I'll share with you, Amanda. Um, the first is um, ICF, working at ICF was the first job that I ever really, really wanted, but it was the one that got away. Uh, because uh, 
ICF was involved very early on in the founding days of uh, what we call Energy Star today. Um, it evolved out of green lights. Um, and um, uh, I had an opportunity to work on it, uh, you know, in its very early t days. Uh, but I couldn't take it because it would have required me moving uh, to Washington, D.C., uh, away from Columbus, Ohio, where my then girlfriend, uh, now wife, is uh, was studying uh, to enter medical school. And um, it wasn't in me to, you know, cut and run uh, and go do my thing while she was about to enter a very challenging chapter of her life. So I thought, well, I should probably do the right thing and, and stick around, be here to support her. So I took a job with a utility, uh, which at the time seemed like a, a distant second choice, but in retrospect, was a fantastic way to learn an industry, a sector, a, you know, a, a worldview that uh, has, you know, really en enabled me to make a difference. Um, so I joined American Electric Power, uh, AEP, same letters, EPA was the agency I would have worked on at ICF. So I joined AEP uh, and, uh, and I spent almost a decade with them, which was really great because I got to clean up one of the dirtiest utilities in the country at the time. And, uh, and now they're really close to the for, you know, front of the pack when it comes to being ambitious on doing the right thing. The second, the second one that I'll share with you was when I left AEP, um, I actually had a chance to, uh, to, to brief an incoming CEO on, uh, on climate change issues because that was my portfolio. Um, and I got on his calendar. I uh, scheduled this briefing. I thought I'm going to you know, get this guy going in the right direction from the get go. Uh, I showed up and he said, looked at his calendar and he said, climate change? Oh, I've already been briefed. And I thought, but this is your first week at the company. Uh, how, how, who got to you before me? I, I, who else works on this, you know, besides me that would have gotten to you? And he said, oh, no, it was Jim. Jim. Jim who? Jim Inhofe. The senator? Oh, yeah. He got to, he, he, he called me up. We talked. I, I, I'm all set on climate. And I thought, my God, I've been outmaneuvered by a U.S. senator on climate change issues with the CEO of the large, one of the largest utilities in the country. Uh, I was disappointed. And I said, well, I guess I'll give you back your time. And he said, no, let's, let's talk. And uh, for some reason, uh, you know, he, he, he wanted to chat. And, uh, and we ended up having a really ni nice conversation. Maybe he just wanted to, you know, unwind a little bit after you know, the intense first week on the job or something. And I asked him, you know, tell me about a, a leap of faith that you've taken in your career. And he said, you know what, I was a CEO of a small natural gas company, and I left that industry, I left that company to become, uh, you know, a vice president at an electric utility. And everyone thought I was crazy. Here I was the top dog, and now I'm going to be second fiddle. Um, but he said, I knew that I needed to work on something bigger. I knew I needed a bigger pond. I knew I wanted a new challenge. And so I took that leap of faith, and it's, it's worked out. And um, at my next annual job review, a few weeks later, uh, I did the same thing. Uh, I, I, I turned in my, my notice and uh, I went to go work on a gubernatorial campaign um, because I knew I was ready for something new, ready for something bigger, and I wanted to, to try something challenging. And how was that experience? Working on a gubernatorial campaign really opened my eyes to what I think is kind of the, the terrible analogy. Wartime footing is the what I wanted to say, and I can't think of a better way to say it. But this terrible sense of urgency, this idea that there is a huge deadline. There's going to be a very objective result against which you're measured. And you've got to do everything you can every single day to get to where you know, you've won. And, uh, and a campaign is kind of the perfect way to, to, to have that sort of urgency, that, that you know, way to know if you've done enough. And that is something that's really, uh, I think of as the way to work. 
you know, working in the utility sector, there is kind of the opposite of the sense of urgency. The, the job is to keep things the same. And in a campaign, your job is to, you know, uh, ignite and change. And so um, I really enjoyed working in that campaign. It led to a career in the clean tech sector, which is, you know, a bunch of startups. Startups are basically campaigns. Um, and, uh, and, and I, I really was enlightened to this way of working. Uh, and uh, everyone has a job description, but you actually, at the end of every day, it's all hands on deck all the time, uh, which I find fun. Um, it's kind of like how movies work. You know, movies are a bunch of talent that come together, they do a film. You know, you know, in, in, in the campaign world, you've got election day. Uh, in the movie world, you've got release day. Uh, you have box office figures, you have election results. Uh, and then after a time, everyone kind of disbands eventually, uh, but people find each other again because it's kind of this like, big bang, you know, everything explodes and then everything comes back together. Uh, people, you know, keep in touch, uh, especially the ones that you know are good at what they do and you can find them to, to, to work on the next project with you at some point. That's an interesting analogy. I've never thought about it like that. <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah. So how did the one that got away eventually, you know, come back? Where, how did you live? Yes. <laughs> um, it, it all, uh, like many career moments, it's it's happenstance, uh, really. Um, I was visiting a friend. Uh, he lives in Hawaii. I was at a conference there, and uh, I, I caught up with him. I said, you know, uh, let's hang out. Uh, he said, oh, yeah, join us. Uh, we're going to take a walk on the beach uh, as a family. We're going to meet with some friends. Uh, you know, come join us. And I did. Uh, and I met uh, someone who um, uh, I realized we went to college together. She was a few years behind me, played the name game. Turns out that she's married to uh, a guy who was in uh, the, the, the Yale Russian Chorus, which I led for uh, several years uh, when I was an undergrad. Of course. And so, uh, so you know, uh, I was like that small world. Uh, and, you know, you get to talking to people. But what do you work on? Oh, I work on climate. Oh, what do you do on climate? Because I'm in energy. She says, oh, I work at this place called ICF interesting and she said by the way would you know anyone who might be interested in leading a climate center at icf and uh one thing led to another uh i, I guess i pulled a bit of a dick cheney move and, uh, and said yeah I, I i think i do um but it ends up being the right opportunity because i was ready for um you know the biggest lever i'm always looking for a bigger lever to pull uh, a bigger way to make a change and icf is kind of the ultimate force multiplier you know we we help governments we help you know businesses we help nonprofits really with, you know, answering the questions that they can't solve themselves. And uh, uh, it's a tremendous opportunity to do some good for a company that is arguably, you know, the largest and certainly one of the oldest climate consultancies uh, in the world. The one that got away. Yeah, right. <laughs> You're back. <laughs> and, you know, I, I know that uh, prior to joining ICF this time around, you would have been stationed in the D.C. area, but you're actually in Oregon, in Portland right now. So why is this location important and meaningful to you and your family? Um, it's going to sound shallow, but it's absolutely true. My wife grew up watching a lot of Grizzly Adams and had this mental image of like living in a log cabin in the woods somewhere. Uh, and uh, when she finished her medical training, uh, you know, we had a chance to kind of pick a place and then build our lives. Um, so we checked out the Northwest and uh, and we don't live in a log cabin, but it certainly is the kind of place that fits the mental imagery. Uh, you know, the, the mountains beckon every day. Uh, the coast is not too far away. Um, and uh, it's it's really a delightful place. I can hike a different trail every weekend and never you know count uh, never do the same one twice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's you know in, in terms of climate change, environmental studies, your love for the outdoors, uh, your your passion for cleaning up and leaving places the way you left them. I'm curious what your hopes are uh, for your your aspirations and your position for climate change, or maybe the difference that you hope that you can make in your position. Well. 
I don't know that I'll be able to make the difference that I think needs to be made uh, in my lifetime. Um, but the best I think uh, you know I can hope for is to, to to build the foundation upon which others will will add. You know, ideally, I work myself out of this job, and before I retire, I you know I'm like, okay, if there's no more climate work to do, uh, we're done. Uh, you know, nothing to see here, folks. Um, but I think we all recognize that that's not going to be the case. Um, the momentum behind climate change is uh, you know uh, uh, too strong to stop at this point. Um, we've really got a lot of work ahead of us. That said, um, I am a big believer that you know human ingenu- human ingenuity is our greatest resource. You know, we can really you know everyone does projections. ICF does a lot of projections, but almost always those projections involve extrapolating from what is already known. And uh, if in my you know the remainder of my career uh, we can invent, uh, we can innovate, uh, and we can create new solutions that can scale quickly enough to to make what looks like a really heavy and hard lift, uh, much more manageable and quick, uh, we will have done ourselves a tremendous service. So uh, I'm very interested in, you know, uh, uh, making sure that that innovation, you know, that the ground is fertile for that kind of innovation. Absolutely. Well, Michael, you've clearly had a a bit of an unpredictable path uh, in a career journey to where you are today. And I think couple beginnings can mean a lot of things. Obviously, we, you know, it's, it's where we come from we grew up, but in my opinion, it's also in your perspective and your purpose, your values, uh, which also speak to, you know, who we are and where we came from. So thank you so much for sharing yours with us. And, and to end, I love to ask if there's any advice or words of wisdom that you would tell young adults about finding their way or, you know, finding their passion. That's a good question, Amanda. <laughs> you know, you and I as children of immigrants, I think uh, might, you know, often think about that sort of leap of faith uh, that our parents took. Um, I often think about that in terms of, you know, with my own, uh, you know, career, um, when something feels scary, uh, when something feels like, gosh, I, you know, I don't know about this. I, I, I think about, you know, the fact that uh, our parents made harder choices, uh, took bigger leaps of faith, and it, it requires leaps of faith uh, to, to move forward. Um, you know, if you're, if you're staying still, uh, that means you're getting behind. And so uh, I would urge, uh, you know, especially folks who are entering into the, you know, their careers in the climate and energy space, uh, to really, you know, try to regularly leave your comfort zone, get into meetings where you don't know what's going on. You're having to learn a new set of jargon. You're having to, you know, acquire a new set of you know, knowledge, uh, because that's when you're growing. That's when you're learning. Um, and this is a field where, uh, you know, things are moving fast. They have to move fast if we're going to save ourselves. So, uh, uh, yeah, challenge yourself. Take those leaps of faith. Don't be scared. Or it's okay to be scared, I guess. We'll do it anyways. Yeah, yeah. You know. It, being scared means that uh, you're 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 at that boundary of your comfort zone and, and and the learning zone. Awesome. Well, those are wonderful notes to end on, Michael. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your background, your journey with us, and your perspective. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Amanda. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Humble Beginnings. Check out WashingtonExec.com to find more of our podcasts and profiles on executives. See you next time.